Who can forget the little girl holding her dog and saying, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Or you can envision Arnold Schwarzenegger and his half-robot self saying, I'll be back. Or who could forget the greatest reveal in movie history when the antagonist Darth Vader said, Luke, I am your father. Or of course, who could forget the little fish named Dory chanting on her adventure, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Or Forrest Gump sitting there saying things like, mom always said, or life is like a box of chocolates. Better yet, who can forget Neil Armstrong saying, that's one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. And who doesn't get chills when they hear Dr. Martin Luther King's voice saying with intensity and passion and yet an overarching calm, I have a dream. The truth is the words that we say have a way of sticking with us. Whether it's from movies or books or personal conversations with loved ones, we remember words. I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy, and there's one comedian that says every time before he hangs up the phone with his mom, he says, Mom, you are a rose in a field of weeds, and then hangs up. Because just in case she passes away before he talks to her again, he wants to be able to hold that over his siblings' heads forever. (laughs) Because the words that we say matter. They matter to us who say them, and they matter to those who receive them. If you have the type of social anxiety like I do, anytime you slip up and say something wrong, or you say something genuinely kind of rude or mean, those words literally haunt you as you try to go to sleep. The reason that I use a manuscript when I preach is because I want each word that I say to be thought through and be correct. Because the idea that I get up here and speak to you all what I think that God wants you all to hear is absolutely terrifying. And this idea of words is where our scripture comes from today. We're still in the book of James, and this is probably the most famous part of James. It's chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But before we read the scripture, I wanted to address the book as a whole for a second. Because I wanted you all to get into the same headspace that I was in as I was writing this. Usually it's good practice before you preach to ask the scripture that you're reading questions. You ask it who, what, when, where, why. You look for weird comments that are oftentimes a little string that the author wants you to pull to lead you to a bigger context and to a bigger conversation. You try to familiarize yourself with the text and the situations around it so you can put yourself into the listener's shoes. Now that usual good practice left me frustrated with the book of James. For the who, we know that the author is likely James, the brother of Jesus. For the when, you can find about three or four different time frames that all have really good evidence for when it was written. We don't know who he's writing to, We don't know why he's writing it. We don't know why James is considered an epistle when it's not. Instead, it's written more like wisdom literature. And so we don't know why James would be the only piece of wisdom literature that made it into the New Testament. 
And we don't know why so much of what James is saying is simply restatements of philosophers of his time. There seems to be more questions around the book than there were answers. And I say all that to let you all know, as I was preparing this, I was very frustrated. But somewhere in that frustration, I think I found something that's beautiful. And I hope that you all will travel with me to that this morning. So our text comes from James 3, verses 1 through 12. It reads, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay, I already need to pause for a second. This has to be one of the least helpful verses in the Bible. <clears throat> because clearly, clearly, James has never had to convince a Sunday school teacher to come and volunteer. So allow me to speak on behalf of everyone who's had to beg for somebody to come lead a small group. Thanks, James. But the scripture continues, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. So at the start of chapter 3, James decides to elaborate on something that he mentioned in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says, everyone should be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, as I just mentioned how frustrating this book was because there are no answers about it, there is one thing that everybody seems to agree on, and it's that the tongue is a powerful thing. There are writings throughout the Egyptian world and the Greco-Roman world, throughout the book of Proverbs and through philosophy, that the tongue has consequences. And the path to wisdom involves speech being under control. Now, many of you have likely heard a sermon on James 3 before. And it's interesting to me that most sermons on, the t on this text and the taming of the tongue are spent berating people and making them feel bad about the way they speak. The exact opposite of what the text is trying to tell us. And sometimes that can be warranted. We've all had something said to us that has ruined our day. 
we have all had words said to us from somebody we care about or somebody we look up to that has directly affected how we view ourselves. We've had words said to us that have uplifted us, that have helped us be a better person, and that have encouraged us to be our best. And that usual sermon on James 3 is important. You know, things like don't gossip because it directly works against the good of a community. Or don't cuss at people because you shouldn't tear people down when you can instead build people up. Or know that it is important to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Always try to learn before you lash out in anger. All of those things are good and positive and important. But I think that James was on to something much bigger, something that I found beautifully compelling. Because James' writing shows us that he has sort of a cosmic view of the tongue. He says things like, it was set on fire by hell, or the tongue is a restless evil. He goes on later in the chapter to call the tongue demonic. And I think what James is doing here The reason he is so aggressive towards the tongue is because he believes that like God, the tongue has the power to create things. I need y'all to stay with me here. James believes that the tongue has a creation element to it. Throughout those verses in chapter 3, he recalls imagery from the Genesis creation poem time and time again. In 3.9, he reminds us that humans are made in the likeness of God. In 3.7, he talks about the birds and the reptile and the sea creatures, which pulls from the book of Genesis. He also talks about how humans have tamed all of these species, which again goes back to that creation story. And if you think back to that creation story, you'll remember the importance of speech in it. God said, let there be light, and there was. God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. God used speech to create everything around us. And James is saying, much like God used words to create, the world is still being created through our words. And that's why I think James goes on this tangent. Because what we choose to say about God creates a world where that's who God is. Or what we choose to say about the world creates a world where it is as we said it was. What we choose to say about people create a world where those people are what we said. The quotes that I was reading earlier, they take you to a particular world. Dorothy's quote means nothing if you can't picture Oz. We envision the world where Forrest Gump was sitting on that bench or where Dory was swimming through the ocean. We can envision Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and we can see MLK standing there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial as he preaches. The words that we say create the worlds in which we live in. My sermon title for this sermon was, does this sermon title matter? And somewhere in the first service as I was giving this, because usually when you have a sermon title, it's in big block letters on the screen. 
And I was thinking that the person that I sent it to must have thought I was being sarcastic. And so that's why it's not up there. <laughs> but had I named the sermon something like a dog named Spot, wouldn't you assume that we're going to be talking about a dog? Or had I named it Heaven and Hell, wouldn't you assume that that's what we're going to be talking about? The words that we use create the reality in which we live in. And they mold how we hear things and why we do things. If I stood up here and talked for 20 minutes about how David Emery was a terrible person, I could eventually convince at least some of you all that he was. And maybe in the process, I could convince myself of that too. It doesn't matter if it's true or if it's not true. Eventually, I could speak those words into existence. And that's why how we talk about God is so important. In the Old Testament, they wouldn't even say God's name because they knew that the words that they would use could not fully encompass who God is. If you notice, when I get up here and I talk about God, I don't use pronouns or default father imagery. I don't say his or him or father because I believe that the way we talk about God creates who God is to people. Now, I have no issue if your personal theology involves God being a male. It doesn't bother me. In fact, for many, God as father is a very helpful metaphor for who God is to them. The reason that I choose not to use that imagery is for the one person that listens that might be listening that doesn't need another father in their life or that doesn't need another authoritative male. Maybe they've been molested in their past or maybe their father bailed on them at a young age. Maybe the only world that they know is where father is synonymous with untrustworthy or manipulative or harmful. There are people that get up and walk away from God because the last thing they want is another father in their life. The words we choose to use create that reality. It's not that God is actually any of those things that I just said. But if we would just use one of the other hundreds of metaphors in the Bible for God, then maybe we could be more helpful in creating a world for that person. And the same can be said about the world. James says that the tongue can start a fire. And when we choose to talk about people, if we label them with our words as different or evil or less than or other, then we are creating a world in which what we said is the way people are viewed. We create communities and states and countries of people that believe those words. When in reality, that person that we were talking about is no different than us. We're just the one that got to choose the words that defined them. There's a book that I love called The Wicked Truth. It's a theology book about the musical Wicked. For those of you that don't know, Wicked is about the Wicked Witch of the West, which we learn from the Wizard of Oz is an evil person. But in the musical Wicked, we learn her side of the story. And we learned that she wasn't actually that evil all along. She was just trying to do what was right. But because the people around her said that she was evil, that forced her into a world in which that was her identity. 
even though it wasn't true. And there's a quote that I love that says, history is always written by the winners. When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated and the winner writes the history books, which glorifies their own cause and disparages the conquered foe. And I think that James knew firsthand of this unfortunate reality. James knew that when we speak, we have the ability to shape history. James knew that throughout his own people's history, a world had been created in which they were less than. A world had been created in which they were slaves. Words were used to paint his own brother, the son of God, as a bad person who deserved to die. And that's why he speaks so passionately about this creation power that words hold. So we have to choose every day what kind of world we want to speak into existence. What do we want to say about our church or about the city of Louisville? When we talk to our friends or our colleagues, do we use hope-filled words? Do we talk about how great this place is or how much potential this city has? Or do we speak negatively about it? What world are we trying to create here in this place? And are you using your tongue to help speak that world into existence? Or are you using your words to work against it? So last week I had a few friends ask three or four people in each of the services what words they would use to describe this church community. Some of the words people used were welcoming, caring, devoted, thoughtful, inclusive, real conversations, family, and breaking the mold of the traditional church. One person wrote, our church is a dynamic melting pot of Christ followers that enjoy serving others, a group that encourages you to ask questions and have discussions about all that exists in our world, a compassionate body of humanity that will love others unconditionally. Another person wrote, this is the most amazing church I've ever been in. The members genuinely care about you and they've loved you regardless of who you are or where you are in life. One of our children in children's ministry wrote, our church is persevering because even though we all go through hard times, like when I lost my father, we all come to this church to pray and to be together as a large family. And I take the time to read those because I believe that James would be thrilled. I believe that the words we use create the world and the reality in which we live in. And the words that you all have used to describe this community is exactly the world that I want to be a part of. I am thankful for a church that these are the words that, we, that came to mind when asked to describe us. And my challenge, my hope from this sermon is that all of us will continue to speak these words and these truths into reality, into the reality in which we live. My hope is that the words we choose to speak into existence every single day of our life are the words that we chose to use when describing this place. That we speak words of love and acceptance and inclusion and service into this world. And my hope is that one day, these won't just be words, 
but instead they will be the world that we live in.